Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. Gabby, did you have, as I'm going to say, a happy Christmas that's from Harry Potter? I hope I did. You're talking to my past self, though, and listeners are hearing this in the future since we're making this recording ahead of both of our holiday vacations. That's pretty radical. Uh, well, we we're do time hope. traveling. <laughs> yes. Traveling through time in a DeLorean. We do hope everyone had a nice holiday weekend. So before the new year hits. This week, we thought it would be a good idea to talk about one of the strong, silent forces of the newsroom. That is what we call KRQE Investigates. It is a two-person unit. And if you didn't know, when Gabby isn't podcasting, she is one of those two investigative reporters alongside someone else who we've had on the show earlier this year and having her on here again, investigative reporter Ann Perret joining us here today. And hello. Hello, you two. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So this week's format is also perhaps slightly different from the usual. Gabby is, of course, co-hosting this podcast normally, but Gabby, you have graciously agreed to be a semi-guest this week. Semi-guest. Because we're going to talk to you a lot more about one of your investigations. Yeah, and I'll answer your questions, Chris, as best as I can when we get there. But before I give up my host hat, some more context for what we're doing today Anne and I picked some of our best or most impactful stories of 2022 to be featured in our KRQE Investigates special that will air at the end of the year. Our special projects executive producer, Kristen Ferguson, put that together. Thank you, Kristen. And that special will air on KRQE soon on December 29th. Ahead of that, Ann and I will go over a couple of the stories in that special, which listeners will be able to watch, and we'll link to those stories in our show notes on the podcast. All right, so let's talk about these stories, and we'll start with Ann. Out of all the stories you covered this year, we had you pick one to talk about today. Before we let people listen to that story, tell us a little bit about it. Why did you investigate this particular issue? So I chose my story about Brian Veneta. He's a deputy who served the in the Curry County Sheriff's Department in January of this year. He died of COVID-19. His wife and parents have both said that they have no doubt that he caught COVID-19 on the job, but workers' compensation disagreed with them. So his family was denied line-of-duty death benefits as a result of workers' comp disagreeing with them. The piece that I did kind of looks at why that is and then the fight that his family waged to get any sort of money, any sort of financial benefit to support um, his family after his unexpected passing. He was just 34 years old. Deputy Veneta had a wife and two young kids. The why of why I chose to investigate this particular issue, his family had reached out and they wanted answers and that's you know, a big part of our job is is helping people in that way. They were under the impression that protections were in place, that his wife and kids would be taken care of. Um, he served as a law enforcement officer for 12 years. Again, they believed that he contracted COVID-19 on the job. They had no doubt, as they repeatedly told me. And then we were also kind of questioning how, you know, our countless other first responders in New Mexico would be impacted if they were to die of COVID-19 or even just get sick from it after seemingly catching it on the job, 
there would be no guarantee that their family would be financially supported if we're looking at what happened with WD Veneta. So would they continue to show up to work and risk the infection? So a lot of questions that we wanted answered. Did this story take a lot of research or time to process? Definitely. There was a whole lot to make sense of. Workers' comp is dished out by a private insurance company. They would not talk to me. Neither would Curry County. And then there were the state and federal laws that I had to dissect and just a lot of paperwork to read through and a lot of on background conversations to be had to really understand what was going on here. So if you haven't seen Anne's story, we're going to play it for you right now and you can listen to this story. We'll also link to it in our show notes. If they're killed in the line of duty, their families are supposed to be taken care of. That's the promise law enforcement officers have heard again and again. But what if they die of COVID-19 after seemingly catching that virus on duty? In a KRQE News 13 investigation, Ann Perrett shows you the fight a deputy's family has had to wage to get what they believe they deserve. The sheriff's department came and escorted us home. Every town we went through, they picked up more police cars, and it was a very neat honor. Ready! Hey! Honors for a man who served 12 years in law enforcement. My dad was an FBI agent, so uh, oh, yeah, we go way that. back. His son, Brian Venetta, began his career with the U.S. Border Patrol before returning home to Curry County. He said, I want to come back where my granddad and where you served the community. And when you went into dinner, people go, hey, I, I know you. you. You were at my house the other night. Charlie Vanetta and his son were actually partners for two weeks in 2021. The sheriff's department asked for his help during the pandemic. To get to do that and to watch each other and watch each other's back was amazing. He loved serving his community. That's why he did law enforcement. Um, he just had a great personality. Christina Veneta married Brian in 2015. The two met when he transported a patient to the hospital where she worked. Christina brought two sons into Brian's life. They were not his biologically, but they became his. If anybody were to say they were his stepkids, he'd probably punch them in the face. He did not look at them as his stepkids. They were his boys. Boys now growing up without him. Brian died months before his older son's high school graduation. He tested positive for COVID-19 December 18th. The deputy, who wasn't vaccinated, spent two weeks on a ventilator, including Christmas and New Year's, and passed away on January 3rd. Brian was just 34 years old. I never would have thought when I took my husband to the emergency room that that was the last time I was going to actually be able to see him. On top of grieving, Christina had to spend the six months after he died fighting for her husband's line of duty death benefits. He worked. He didn't just sit at the office all day. He didn't go sit somewhere in his car. He was very active in his job. So I have no doubt that he caught this on duty. None. The workers' compensation paperwork submitted by Curry County agrees, saying they presume their deputy was exposed to the virus while on patrol, but... They denied it. They're, they're insistent that he did not get COVID on duty. 
I tried to question the privately run New Mexico County Insurance Authority pool and was told, quote, the discussion or decision to deny any claim is privileged. With this denial, Brian's wife and kids are missing out on more than $600,000, 13 years of his salary through workers' comp and extra state retirement funds. So now he only gets what he's put in. He doesn't get fallen officer retirement, which is huge. Trying to recover at least some of the workman's comp money, Christina hired a lawyer to fight the insurance authority's ruling. She settled. Rather than dealing with the court process, they'll pay Brian's family $15,000 total. I have a lot of anger built up just because my husband served his community. He served the people of his community, and there's nothing. His family could be getting some help from the federal government, though, up to $390,000 for Deputy Veneta's death. A law passed in 2020 expanded the DOJ's Public Safety Officers Benefits Program to now say it should be presumed an officer who contracts COVID-19 got it on the job. So, to the feds, Deputy Veneta did die in the line of duty. Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey sponsored that bill. We must eliminate the instances in which families are asked to prove what is unprovable. So what about the state government? New Mexico's governor issued an executive order similar to the feds, but it only applies to state employees. County deputies work for their local government. The more claims you have, the more money you have to pay to cover your claims. So it could affect the county's bottom dollar as far as their premium for insurance. Do you think that's... It has to have some bearing on it. I tried to reach Curry County's manager, Lance Pyle, who also serves as chair of the board that governs the New Mexico County Insurance Authority. He refused a phone call, but emailed to say the board does not make decisions on claims and, quote, my heart breaks for the family on their loss. The county manager has not reached out not one time. It's hard to understand. The Venetas feel outside of the sheriff's department, their county leaders have abandoned them. They didn't attend his funeral. And so. And that, that bothers me. You know, I would hate for another spouse to have to go through what I've gone through. Brian's death also alerted his county to a quote, oversight. The Venetas believed his $50,000 life insurance would double since he died in the line of duty. But Curry County hadn't been paying for that added benefit. And Perrette, KRQE investigates. Brian Venetta is the second New Mexico lawman to die from COVID-19. The Colfax County undersheriff died of the virus in September of 2021. His sheriff says he ran into the same trouble with the insurance company. In this year's legislative session, lawmakers voted to increase the supplemental benefit provided to families of fallen officers. They could receive $1 million on top of the officer's retirement and life insurance. That law went into effect after Deputy Vanetta died. So after that story aired, did you get any feedback from either viewers or other people who saw this? Sometimes even government workers will maybe email you and say, hey, I saw that and I want you to know this. Did you get any feedback? Because it sounds like the county and the insurance company would not comment for your story on this deputy's case. The feedback I got was really surprise, which I was kind of expecting. You know, a lot of people were not aware of what this family had been going through. Typically, when 
a first responder dies, I mean, the red carpet is laid out for their family. Um, and that was just not the case for them. They felt, again, you kind of heard in the story, you know, that the county officials didn't show up to the funeral and that was really hard for them. The family also reached out. They were certainly grateful. Um, the story actually informed them of some things that they didn't know. The county manager, I know you mentioned, um, couldn't get them to comment, but I did get an email from the county manager. As, as you saw, he would not answer any of my phone calls. And of course, it did take some time for him to get back to me. He wouldn't explain anything about the insurance company's decision. Again, we know that he is the chair of the board that governs the New Mexico County Insurance Authority. But he did express his condolences to the family for their loss, something that they tell me that they had actually never heard from him. So that meant something to them. Your story also mentioned Brian Vanetta's wife and kids. They're missing out on more than $600,000 from workers' compensation. That's 13 years of his salary and extra state retirement funds. His family isn't getting that fallen officer retirement, which tell us again, what is that difference? What would that difference be for that family? Yeah, it's a little confusing, right? Um, again, you asked me like about the process and how much time it takes, and, and that was one big piece of this. So workers' compensation denied that he con contracted COVID-19 on the job. That meant no line of duty death benefits. His wife hired a lawyer to fight that, to argue that she ended up settling rather than she told me kind of dealing with that court case because you never know how long that could take. She settled for $15,000, very different than $600,000. And I have documents that show that with that settlement, she signed paperwork saying that she understands, she agrees that this settlement does mean workers' comp isn't now saying that he died in the line of duty. They still believe he did not die in the line of duty. As a result, when you mentioned that fallen officer's retirement fund, that is through the PERA. And they have said to the family, the family tells me that with that denial, his family does not qualify for the fallen officer retirement fund. I'm told that that would have doubled the amount of money that he was putting into his retirement. So instead, what his family's receiving right now is just the money that he put into his retirement account. And when you talk about that workers' comp denial, one important thing to note, you saw the death certificate and it said that this officer died of COVID-19, correct? Yes. But again, their argument is he didn't get it on the job. So in May of 2020, you mentioned this in your story as well, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, he seemed to sort of foresee this problem, sponsored a bill to help families like the deputy in this story. He said at the time, quote, we must eliminate the instances in which families are asked to prove what is unprovable. You heard that in the story. So the deputy's family in your story, did they end up receiving money from the federal government because of that bill? Yes. Um, I have learned since the story aired that the family did get those dollars. They were expecting that because, again, the bill very clearly says you don't need to prove what is unprovable. From my research, it should be close to $390,000 that the family is getting um, or did get. The intention of it is to pay for his kid's college and um, just kind of set them up for their future, but of course also help out his wife as well. 
Is there anything else from this story, Anne, or from his family that you'd like to share? I just, I look at it and see it as a very like unique thing, right? Officers, it's, we all know it's a very dangerous and potentially deadly job. So this line of duty, this fallen officer retirement is a probably something that a lot of families consider when they have husbands and fathers and wives, you know, do this job. And then we hit a global pandemic where so many people died. So I find this, you shed a lot of light into something that maybe people weren't thinking about. Yeah. Because again, I think it was just expected, right? That because it's kind of a respect thing to take care of a family like that. Of course, we know that there is paperwork. It was a private insurance company. You know, they have their own obligations and things like that. But I did want to mention that on top of the federal dollars, I'm told that they did receive money from the New Mexico Department of Public Safety's. It's the Law Enforcement Officer Memorial Fund. A board determines if the police officer died in the line of duty. This board did recently decide, yes, Deputy Brian Venetta did die in the line of duty. So um, his family also received what should be around $250,000 from that fund. What's interesting is in this last legislative session this year, lawmakers voted to increase the money a fallen officer's family would receive to a million dollars, but that went into effect after Deputy Venetta passed. Um, so again, his family is receiving $250,000 from that fund. With that, his name's also being added to the Law Enforcement Officer Memorial Wall that's in Santa Fe on the Department of Public Safety's campus. His name's expected to be added next May uh, during Police Week. And then his parents tell me, which was a, a, a big honor for them, and I think what they had kind of been waiting for, the, the respect that they had been waiting for, um, his name is going to be added to the wall. That's part of the National Police Memorial in Washington, D.C., as well. So that'll be next year too. Well, it's an interesting story. So we appreciate you illuminating this one for us as well, because I think it's an example of how there might be some rules out there to address circumstances, but certainly you find holes and areas where those rules don't necessarily address. And this is a good example of one of them. So very interesting. Thanks for, thanks for doing it. Yeah. Thanks, Anne. Thank you. Now, Gabby, it is your turn. One of the most impactful stories you're sharing with us is one you put together in March. Tell us a little bit about it before we hear it. The story I'm choosing to share with you guys includes what APD is now calling a miracle confession from a serial killer. So it features a man, Paul Apodaca. He was in his 50s when he came forward to University of New Mexico police last summer and he started talking about murders that took place in the city 30 years ago when university police understood that he was potentially confessing to his own crimes. They brought in an APD homicide detective who was conducting this interview that you'll hear in my story. So my story includes audio from police lapel cameras. And in the video, you can see Apodaca speaking. He's sitting slouched over on a bench. His hands are handcuffed behind his back. And police say he was homeless at the time of this confession, potentially suffering from heat exhaustion on the campus. So his voice is sort of hard to hear. But I went through hours of his interviews that we obtained at KRQE. 
And I put together a two-part series on this case. I just felt like it was very remarkable that you have this man confessing to these 30-year-old cold cases. These families, some of them are, are still with us and haven't had answers up until now. So here's part one of that investigation. A quick warning, though, some of the details in this story are disturbing and graphic. More than 30 years after two young women and a teenage girl were murdered in Albuquerque, a middle-aged man comes forward to get something off his chest, admitting he was the killer. News 13 investigative reporter Gabrielle Burkhardt obtained Paul Apodaca's chilling confession. A warning, the details he shares are disturbing. It's taken me so long to know how much pain I've caused this this moment last July was the moment detectives and victims' families had been waiting for for decades. After years and years of contemplating and searching, I understand all the pain that I've caused and I feel it mm -hmm. for families, people that have murdered me. Lapel video shows this Albuquerque police homicide detective didn't immediately realize she was interviewing a possible serial killer. I came here um, with the understanding that you had information on some homicides, but I did not know that you were talking about yourself. Paul Apodaca, now in his 50s, had just been picked up by University of New Mexico police. Homeless and possibly suffering from heat stroke, he wanted to talk to police. So I'm going to read you your constitutional rights. Apodaca goes on to confess to three unsolved murders. I murdered Caitlin Arquette. I know a girl that was crossing the bridge in Central. In June of 1988, need to know uh, what happened from the time she left the fraternity house to the time we found her. 21-year-old UNM student Althea Oakley was walking home from a party when she was attacked by a man with a knife near CNM, stabbed multiple times before her assailant ran off. Apodaca says he learned on the news later that night that Oakley had died. He says that was his first murder. When she died, Else mattered. I just kept doing it again Apodaca worked as a security aide at TVI at the time, now CNM. He says he saw Oakley walking and followed her with the intention of raping her. That's why I had no Aside from a sketch and witness accounts of a man who took off, police didn't have much and the case went cold. Then in September of 1988... She was found shot to death near Tingley Beach on September 9th of 1988 while walking with a friend uh, around 1 in the morning. 13-year-old Stella Gonzalez was shot and killed. At the time of his confession, Apodaca described the killing but didn't know the victim's name. What did she look like? How did you kill her? The following summer, July 16, 1989, 18-year-old UNM student Caitlin Arquette was shot to death as she was driving home on Lomas near Broadway. Caitlin Arquette apparently was the victim of a random traffic shooting. I saw her Lomas and Broadway. She continued to drive forward until she lost consciousness and hit the telephone pole. 
Arquette's murder was one of the most high-profile cold cases in the city over the years. Albuquerque police say they have very few clues in this case. She wants to be a doctor. Arquette's mom, Lois Duncan, the author of I Know What You Did Last Summer, also wrote the book Who Killed My Daughter, a book Apodaca says he read. It's a lot of years to carry that around. It's a shame that it's taken so much to bring me to this point. Apodaca also confessed to raping other women. He was sentenced to 20 years in 1995 for raping a young family member. And since his release, he says he struggled to come forward about these crimes. Why did you do it? I didn't have my heart against women. I resent them. Why? Because I've always seen them treat women bad and they have older women and I tried to be nice to them and they He says his actions, motivated by hate, were evil and dark, and referred to the word of God and his struggle to accept punishment. God is forgiven. I've come to realize that I, I don't deserve to be forgiven. Gabrielle Burkhart, KRQE Investigates. That same day, homicide detectives took a DNA sample from Apodaca, then researched old case files, returned to the crime scenes, and worked to make sure Apodaca was telling the truth. Listening back to the story again, that is just part one of this two-part series you did. You said you listened to hours worth of lapel videos related to this case. What stuck out to you listening to this confession? What stuck out the most? So in part two, which you haven't heard, but I, I will link to that in the show notes, I reveal that Paul Apodaca did actually speak to an officer on scene at one of the murders that he claims to have committed. And then again in jail, he was visited by a PI that was hired by one of his victim's mothers. He said she was the closest to IDing him as the killer. And that private detective was hired by Caitlin Arquette's mom, Lois Duncan, who happened to be the author of the book, I Know What You Did Last Summer. She also wrote a book titled Who Killed My Daughter? And Apodaca said that he checked out that book from the prison library and that he read it. And when investigators asked him what he thought of the book, he told them in these interviews, I thought that it was a woman desperately trying to figure out why somebody had Don't done this to her daughter. We've been working for so many, so many years just to get the answer to why our daughter died. Lois Duncan and her family have since moved away, but their hope of one day finding Caitlin's killer is still very much alive. I wake up every night to the sound of gunshots and to the sound of my daughter calling, Mother, Mother, help, and I'm not there. He also told investigators that he had only confessed to his mother and she died years ago before he came forward with this confession. Gosh, and it's, yeah, it, I mean, I think you've mentioned this, but it, it is not every day that you get these kinds of confessions. It's really incredible to watch this stuff. So in the end of that first story in the uh, anchor tag, that's where our anchor comes back on camera and says a little bit more about the story after it. It's mentioned that APD went back to that initial crime scene. They collected DNA from Apodaca to make sure he was telling the truth. Can you tell us about what you know about the process? And, and it does sound like maybe 
they were able to determine he was telling the truth all these years later, right? Based on some of this evidence. Yeah. And it's so remarkable to watch this process unfold, right? Because you hear about like false confessions and even some people on Facebook were commenting, well, maybe he was just homeless and wanted to, you know, a warm bed and to get off the streets. But he knew details about these crimes that were never made public. One of them was, I watched him describe this watch. And this was, investigators came back and did multiple interviews with him, right? It wasn't just like the day of his confession on the bench when he's like having a heat stroke. They came back to him. He sounded very much coherent. He was drawing diagrams, essentially maps of where he would wait for his victims and where he was going. And there was a, a his first murder that he claims to have committed was with like a small knife actually. And it was a tragic story about following a young woman um, who was walking from what is now the CNM campus and they were on the sidewalk. It was broad daylight. He told investigators he had planned to rape this woman, but when he approached her, I guess he had this small pocket knife and basically there was a struggle and he admits like I stabbed her multiple times um, then he ran off. There was even a witness at a house who had described seeing him. Police at the time put out sketches and he described a watch that he had taken off and left on scene because he anticipated that there would be a struggle. But then he told police later, you know, she didn't have time to basically fight back. And it was just really sad. But he described details on this watch that were never made public that were pieces of evidence that were collected on the scene, you know, 30 years ago. And uh, police were able to, yeah, basically through investigative tactics, going back to the scenes, having him draw diagrams, re-interviewing witnesses they could reach out to, corroborating basically his story and determine, yeah, he was telling the truth. So Apodaca now, he's been charged in three cold case murders, but it sounds like there's also as well other shootings of people who didn't die, who he admitted to shooting. Can you tell me a little bit about those other cases? Yeah. One of the most chilling things about Paul Apodaca's confession is that his killings did appear to be pretty random. I mean, he said he was targeting women, that he had this like hatred in his heart for women after being, you know, denied or he just couldn't feel, he, he didn't feel like he could get them to date him. These are all things he says in the confession. We know that random killings are rare. He described driving around the city of Albuquerque with this anger in his heart. He literally had a rifle with him in the vehicle and he would go like shoot women. At least two people that he said that he shot survived. One of them was someone he had been following in his car that he thought was a woman, turned out to be a transgender person. And that person survived. Apodaca did serve time for that crime. And he told police at the time that he'd been fooled. He now admits that was a lie. There was another person he claims to have shot in the face. I reached out to APD and they were able to recently get in touch with that person and let that person know about this confession. Detectives did tell me that the statute of limitations in that case did run out. Anything else that you'd add about this story? You know, some of his cases are going to go to trial this year. One of them, actually, uh, he should face a trial. The other ones, I'll keep an eye on the court system. They have hearings scheduled. We'll see how those court cases play out. But 
it's just one of those probably once in a lifetime stories that you hear about that you just can't make up the details of and hearing him describe also like why he came forward. He did say that he just wanted to come clean for the victims and the investigator, one of the investigators who was interviewing him said, you know, talked about forgiveness and the idea of forgiveness. And he said, I don't deserve forgiveness. That was his words. So if you're interested, go check out the story. I did try to include a lot of his confession over a course of multiple days in these videos. So we'll link to those in our show notes and you can check those out if, if you are interested. But I do know that maybe for some of these families, at least having closure, that's something that, you know, this confession did potentially bring to them mm. this many years later. Well, Gabby, thanks for sharing your story. As we mentioned, we will link to all of those stories discussed here today in the show notes. Gabby's story is actually a two-parter. So alongside Anne's, we'll have three links there total. You can find all of those links on the post for this podcast episode as well on krqe.com slash podcasts. That's where if you haven't been there already. We have articles on all of our past podcast episodes. We're going to take a brief break here with one of our newer podcast jams. Hope you like it. But when we return in just a few seconds, a behind the scenes conversation of sorts with both Anne and Gabby, we're going to talk a little bit more about the why behind their work and what fuels them to investigate. So you both, Anne and Gabby, are investigative reporters, and, and I did want to take the moment while we have you both here to talk a little bit more about your job and just to ask you, why did you get into investigative reporting? Because it is different than regular reporting. You spend a lot more time doing stories. So what was it that got you into it, Anne? Time, honestly, does make a really big difference for me getting to spend more time digging deeper into things, really being able to put the full story out there for our viewers. When you're working in the hustle and chaos of day side, sometimes even though you're giving both sides, you don't really get to flesh out all the details. Like um, with my story or with Gabby's story that we just both mentioned they're what, six minutes, seven minute stories. Mm -hmm. And we would have had to pare those down to a minute, a minute and a half. And there's just so much that you miss in that. Yeah. There's a lot of gravity in this, both of your stories that you really do get because of the length, I think. Yeah. And to be able to really make it clear for people too, with that time. So time both to put the story together, but time also for the story time on air, I would say. That was a big piece. I got here a year ago, a little over a year ago now, from Flint, Michigan. Investigative reporting played a really large role in uncovering the Flint water crisis, which the man-made crisis, really big deal there, impacted a lot of people. People died. And you just kind of, I saw firsthand the impact that that extra time, that ability to really look deeper into things can have and does have. 
So I was eager for that opportunity. Yeah. Gabby? Similarly, you know, I really do see journalism itself as a public service. In college, I had professors that were either current or former journalists. And one of them said to me, you know, this job is about giving voice to the voiceless or for people who may not otherwise have that platform to tell their story or um, uncover a wrongdoing. And, you know, that really stuck with me in seeking out my first reporting job and the ability to do investigative journalism is something I do not take lightly at all. I really do think it's a, it's a public service. You know, we all have a, an investment in this community and an uh, interest in making it a better community. And I feel like this job is one way of looking at that. And that's how I look at my role in this community is if I could add to it's a big responsibility. It I is. feel like when people do reach out to us and as I kind of mentioned with my story, you know, this family had a lot of questions and they wanted answers and that's how a lot of our stories start and people trust us, but they also know that we're the ones that have that access. And that to me is, is huge as well. We have the ability to find those answers, whether it's through the time that we're given or because we're able to find the right source too. And sometimes, and I think like Ann and I sit in the same, we share an office, so mm-hmm. we feel a lot of phone calls. And a lot of times we are people's final phone call when they feel like they've reached the limit of like bureaucracy. Like I've called my counselor, I've called my senator, I've called this person and tried to solve this problem and I can't. Can you please help me? And so sometimes it's that. On those lines, you do feel a lot of calls. Sometimes people have a different idea of what investigative reporters actually do. What is the biggest misnomer you think that is out there about investigative reporting that people maybe assume that you just like to remind them like, hey, it's not all just exactly how you see it, perhaps. We are not lawyers. I think that is one big misconception. I mean, we do look at a lot of legal documents, so I feel like we maybe could be lawyers in another life, but <laughs> it's yeah. take a lot more training, of course, but yeah. you, know, you do get a lot of background. Yeah. But sometimes we do end a phone call by suggesting, you know, I, I think you need to call an attorney. Mm-hmm. I would also suggest one thing that I think is important to know about investigative reporting is that while you guys have the capacity to request documents, proof does not appear out of thin air. People always need to provide proof or help nudge you along towards finding proof, right? Certainly. Yeah, we absolutely can request public documents, of course, that takes a little longer than we would like and the people who we're helping with like uh, recently. But, you know, you you can't always just call us and say, I, I need this, find this out, you know, bring light to this. You know, we, we do need a little bit of guidance, a little bit more information, in, in almost every situation, every, every pitch that people bring to us. Yeah. Proof does not just appear out of thin air. What advice would you give to young journalists? You guys have both been in the business now for a while, like, like it or not. I know your wide eyes at me, but <laughs> you guys have both been doing this for a long time. Um, several years. What advice do you give to young journalists? Maybe thinking about moving into the business of reporting. I think you have to remember that this isn't just a job. You are on a daily basis dealing with real people. A lot of people who come to us are having their worst days, have given up and they need help. And 
you know, this isn't just signing an email and, and getting it over with, or, you know, answering a phone call and, and having that conversation and hanging up. You have to remember that you have a huge responsibility that you have been given uh, a huge opportunity in this role, given that access, and you really can make a difference. We have with our stories. I mean, one of your stories, Gabby, ended up with, um, you know, a change at city council, the the bus story that you did, bus violence story that you did. Yeah, I would just say, rem- just remember that there is a lot of responsibility that comes with this career. Yeah. And I would just encourage people, you know, if you are interested in journalism or, you know, have a knack for writing or storytelling, by all means, you know, this profession, like every other one needs dedicated, you know, journalists who are committed. And if you value your community and want to give back, this is another way you can use your skills, you know, your creative skills. We get to be creative with our photographers and our editors and, Um, now even with this podcast and providing a different platform of telling the news. So I appreciate being able to use that as sort of a creative outlet, but also, you know, the service to my community that I can give is in journalism. So if you look at it like that, there is a lot of difference you can make. And I think piggybacking off of uh, Larry Barker's advice to young journalists, be an informed citizen, you know, get involved, volunteer, know what's going on at your council meetings, know who your counselors are, just be informed. Yeah. And where can people reach you? You can always email me at ann.perrette at krqe.com or on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at Ann Perrette. And Gabby? You can also reach me via email, gabrielle.burkhardt at krqe.com and gburknm on social media. Okay. Well, we appreciate everybody listening here and thank you both for a great conversation about the world of investigative reporting and of course the work that you do here at KRQE. You can also go to krqe.com investigations and that will take you to the landing page that has all of their investigative content as well. Thank you all for listening. Uh, if you want to reach out with other story ideas, you can also email me. I'm at chris.mckee at krqe.com. I'm also at chrismckee.tv on social media. Thank you, everybody, for listening.